So, Portia, what is it that you believe about play that makes you so passionate about taking it into businesses and suggesting that leaders uh, use play and teams use play? Mm, the secret is whatever you wish for or whatever your goal, play will find a way. And with all good fairy godmothers, it comes with an asterisk, of course. And that asterisk says, without the nasty side effects you get from different ways of achieving goals. And that's that's kind of the wonderment of play. And that's why I feel so passionate about it. Hello, our guest today is Portia Tung, an experienced executive and agile coach who's passionate about helping people create more playful and creative environments at work. Portia left the corporate world in search of more soulful work and set up her own leadership development business, The School of Play, through which she brings fun and joy to corporates and all sorts of other organisations. I'm Robert Diggings, and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all the joys and perils of bringing people together. We have one simple aim, to help you create world-class teams wherever you are. So if you're a leader, a manager, an HR professional, a coach, consultant or trainer, we're making this podcast for you. In our conversation today, Portia explains why true play is fun, flexible and freely chosen, how play is foundational to our sense of self and why play and work in tandem lead to creativity and invention. So play. We all love to play now and again. Maybe you're a video gamer or a poker player or a -a five-a-sider. Play is the perfect antidote to the stresses of work a means of escape and resetting, right? But what if there's a way of making play a central feature of your work or even your leadership style? Perhaps play is more than an escape from work. Perhaps it's an approach to work. That's what Portia believes. So what exactly does she mean when she says, let's play? I have a very specific definition because I think clarity is key if we're going to hit the mark. So play for me means true play and true play is fair play, safe play and being a good sport. So hopefully, as you can tell already, Robert, from this definition, it means that you've got safety built into this notion of true play, which may be different from what other people might perceive play to be. And is it the play that that children do? Uh, is that is it the same, or is it is it slightly tweaked for mm-hmm. for adults, or is it is it yeah. is it the same as ch- children's play? So I spent a lot of time researching this, both through my leadership program, working with playful adults, thousands of them, all around the world, as it is as part of an organisational change agent. And now you've asked that question. It is. It is the same thing. And the things I've discovered about play has been remarkable in observing pure-hearted, philanthropic adults embrace this thing they call play. I've identified five attributes and the five R's I call them. They are resourceful, they are responsible, they are respectful, they're resilient. And last but not least, they are real. And in your experience, how well is play happening already in business? Is it something that really gets left at the door Mm. or is it already happening but people are calling it something else? Most teams that I come across, because I work in the world of Agile, play in some way. 
Because as human beings, we're highly relational, as you've identified so clearly, and it's almost impossible for a day to go past without playing. Pop quiz for you there, Robert. What is the opposite of play, if you had to make a guess? That's terrific. The opposite Mm. of play. Mm. So I would say it would be something serious, something I probably don't enjoy, Mm -hmm. and it would be very outcome focused. Sure. And when I ask this question to audiences in my talks, their answers include things like my tax return, my boss, or looking after my insurance, right? But the opposite of play is Dr. Stuart Brown, who's really well known in this kind of world of play research, is depression. Oh, let's just let that sit with us for a bit. And I can feel myself going, oh, a bit buzzy. And I remember discovering this from Dr. Stuart Brown's work. And that's really been the one thing that's been pivotal in me launching myself into sharing what true play is in the world. Because, of course, it's nice to have a four-letter word as a way of dealing with you know, possible effects of not feeling as well as we could. Because, of course, that is our birthright, to feel joy and to achieve our own potential. So is is play an antidote to depression? I would say yes. Now, to be clear and to your audience, to play fair, obviously I am not a medical professional in that way. But if we actually look at all the different movements, like the happiness movements and all these things, and we look at what they recommend in the face of depression, especially during COVID, what is it? Well, it's things like go find a friend to go for a walk with, even if it's just as an earbud because you need to be so socially distanced, right? Or go and watch something that will make you laugh or go and, you know, write a letter to a friend or gift something to somebody. I mean, all of those are forms of play. And one of the things I was really excited about your program here is, you know, you've had um, Helena who talks about love. And, you know, what is play? But for me, the ultimate act of love, because it's made up of attention, right, which Neil Malarkey mentions about, you know, attention and improv. It's about intention, but it's also where it comes from. And, you know, so for me, play is the ultimate act of love. And that's why it's so precious to share. So there's a definition of play that I've heard. And I'm, um, forgive me because I can't remember where it's come from, but you may, you may mm, know it. Sure. And it's the idea that play is purposeless activity. Oh, yes. It's, would, mm. would you agree with that? Or how, would you, how does that sit within your research and the way you see it? Yes. So um, actually, I would say the, the play expert world are a little bit divided on this. So for them, true play or free play means that it is totally purposeless, what you've just said aimless, if you like. And then the, there's another bunch who I would include Mihai um, Csikszentmihalyi, the author behind Flow and that wonderful business, because actually it's a bit of both. And what Dr. Stuart Brown has identified is that true play is only seemingly purposeless. Yeah. So if you imagine a busy day at work, you've come home and you think to yourself, well, you know, I've got the box set of um, Walking Dead, you know, season one. Why not use that this evening? Because I just need a bit of that. And so you find yourself enjoying that, you know, into <laughs> maybe the early mornings of the hour and your partner might come in and go, oh, what are you doing, darling? And you might say, oh, nothing. I'm just, you know, just vegging or whatever. But of course, you're not just doing that, right? You're kind of de-stressing and chilling out and just making sense of what's happened in the day or maybe in the last week or so. And in doing that, it allows you to find maybe a little bit of room for joy. So the key thing with play is to see it through the eyes of a child 
But there's another option, which is to see it through the eyes of a loving parent or sibling. And of course, when we start looking at uh, what you've just said, thinking about how children play and looking Mm. through their eyes, of course, it's an outrageous thing to say it's purposeless because for children, and I'd like you to explain what Mm. the, why children play, why why we believe they play and what they get from all of the different kinds of play that young children do. And and, and they, you know, a three-year-old will play differently to a seven-year-old and differently to an 11-year-old. But Tell us a little bit about what we understand about childhood play. Absolutely. And what's really exciting about childhood play and its purpose is that most experts around all the different fields agree that it shapes an organism's brain. It helps us cultivate a sense of self and also create relationships with those around us right? And our place in the world. Um, It's a source of hope. It's a source of joy. It enables us to be resilient. It's kind of like a bottle of vitamins you get (laughs) from the shop if it's the Mr. Men and the Mrs. Little Mrs. ones. But it's, it's like that. And so it is such a resourcing, nurturing element that children, when encouraged and dare I say, allowed, I mean, it's the birthright, allowed and permitted to play their way, they will flourish. So Winnicott, which is the English pediatrician, he said, it is only through play that we are able to discover ourselves. So it's foundational to us, our sense of self and uh, the development of our brains and our um, neurological functioning. Absolutely. Our brains, our bodies, and there's, you know, different ways of identifying play now. You know, there's one kind of play called recapitulative play. I get very excited about this one because when you see a small child sort of squatting down in the garden and digging and you think, oh, they're going to do something torturous to the worms or whatever. And they're just digging and they continue to dig, but have caused no harm to anybody. And maybe they've created a bug hotel. Meanwhile, they're digging and digging and they sort of keep at it. And you cannot, for the life of you, see why they're doing it. Very often they're doing what their ancestors did. So if you ask them what they're doing or why, they're like, they just look at you like you're mad. They're like, well, I'm doing this because everyone was pretty much always done this. And this is the beauty of it is that play connects us with where we come from and enables us to then move forward with greater ease. So does this this mean that we're already programmed to play in the way that... I think I've understood that linguists mm. say that our brains are already wired for us to learn language. Mm-hmm. So are our brains pre-wired to play? In other words, children do not need to be taught how to play. Would that be true? Absolutely. And in fact, we can kind of go a bit more neurological about this, right? You look at um, dopamine, you look at endorphins, the neuroscience side of it. And actually, that's what we want all the time. We'd love to feel good. And that's why we play because, you know, true play is safe play, fair play, being good sport. And also it's fun, flexible and freely chosen, you know, so the children really come alive. You can see that, you know, and you can see that in adults as well, which is wonderful. And then they kind of get on with what they're doing and they'll do it to the best of their ability, not because they're paid a million pounds. Actually, they don't really care much about this because we know from Dan Pink's work, it's not about that kind of motivation. You know, it's about intrinsic motivation and the children love that. And so let's move on to mm. the work that you do with adults, yeah. because you're, um, of course, there are professionals who help children play and, yes. and work in that. Mm-hmm. You're you're much more about bringing play to the adult world through the school of play, mm-hmm. and and we are going to get on to even talking about how play could be a leadership style or could mm-hmm. support a, a leadership style. Yeah. But why do we stop playing then? And the transition from yeah. child to adult is that a cultural thing or is that a neurological thing that we outgrow? 
childhood play yeah, as adults. Absolutely. And I know in your heart of hearts, Robert, you already know the answer and most of your listeners will know. And that's why they're listening, which is we never outgrow play. And that's why I made the, the motto of the School of Play, promoting happier adulthood through lifelong play. This kind of early curtailing of play, I feel and what I've seen, a lot of it is to do with shame. And it's to do with the shame that the adults have grown up with as children. Then they go on to be parents. So when they see their children playing in a certain way, they might think, well, my father stopped me from playing with toys and everything went up the loft, including my wonderful train set. And then he redid my bedroom with just books. And that's what I did. I got the lamp I wanted and I got the desk I wanted. And even though it goes up and down, it's not quite the same as my plane, you know, my train set. And so that little boy will go on to become a father himself one day, perhaps. And he will do that automatically because that will become part of his life script, even though he will know something's not right. And, you know, I'd go so far as to come up with a hypothesis that a lot of midlife crises come from dissatisfied or unplayed out desires and wishes that we've wanted for ourselves since childhood, but been stopped too soon. So tell us about your practice with adult play and what that means. So there are probably very very small number of children listening to us now. There are lots of adults going, okay, this is interesting. And, and for those that have children or, or mm. nieces or nephews will know about childhood play. Yeah. But adult play then, what? how did you get into that and why do you think it's important? Yes. So um, I started my career as a computer programmer, you know, doing Java and that sort of thing. But quickly I realized I was more interested in solving the puzzle that is human relationships and human beings. And so that's when I got into more of the transformational change of organizations and, you know, managers have come to me and say, oh, I've got, you know, let's say I've got Jackie. You know, Jackie's great. She's been in the organization for 20 years, but we're going to move over now to do this thing called Agile. We really want her along because she's, you know, the subject matter expert. We need her. We really care for her, but, you know, there may be no place for her if she's not you know, available to come join us for this ride. So, you know, what I would do is really look at it from a very playful way. But as you know, it would also be very systemic is to include everybody, especially those who came before. And that's why I took time to you sort of listen to who appeared before on your podcast, because it's really important to know that whoever came before enabled us to be here now. So one of the exercises I like to recommend, if that's OK, Robert, to go into that, is um, something from my teacher called John Whittington. And the exercise is called The Living History. And they invite a team to basically just look each other in the eye. And this could be a bit of a warm-up or icebreaker exercise. And they basically arrange themselves in a clock face from 12 o'clock all the way back around. And so the person who's been longest serving might place themselves, like Jackie, at 12 o'clock. And then someone who arrived after Jackie would be maybe at one o'clock. And they kind of do this. And when we do this exercise, something alchemical happens in the room and everybody starts thinking, oh, OK, um, I, I'm not familiar this place of being here. But when they and then you'll kind of see maybe Ben and Elizabeth, they'll go, oh, actually, you were here a month before me. Let's switch. And by doing that movement, this flow of love and life and resources will start happening. And the moment I can almost guarantee from my experience, moment people like Jackie get recognition that actually they were the first to arrive in this team. 
that just kind of changes everything. And I like doing this little kind of ritual exercise, if you like, where when you form the clock face, everyone turns to their right. So they look at the person who's come before them and they can say this out loud or tell a joke or whatever, but just say thank you. And once they've done that, that gets acknowledged and then they turn to the left and then they say, okay, well, I will, from where I am, I will share my knowledge and resources with those who come after me. And it's such a lovely way to get a team really rebooted because that's often the biggest blocker to why teams are not functioning as well as they wish to be. And as you said, this is from systemic constellating work where the history and the place and the time that people are within the system becomes very important. But do you see that exercise as playful or as a piece of play? Uh, tell, Tell me more about how come that's play? Yeah, wonderful. So another type of play is something called deep play. Now deep play, I'm just going to travel back to childhood briefly. Deep play is the kind of play you did without adults being around especially your parents. And that's probably when you got the most learning and the biggest oomph of, oh, wow, I've got this, or you've got this insight about existence and life. And that's deep play. So what I've noticed as I've traveled myself, because I'm a student of this work as well, of play and systemic constellations, is that actually it requires a lot of emotional intelligence to accept your place in a system. I love what you're saying. And a thing that's just occurred to Mm. me is... I understand, the, I totally get, and I really respect you for how, you, how you've explained it, this idea of honouring what's come and who's come before us. Mm. And of course, in family constellations, that can be about our ancestors going back many hundreds, if not thousands of years. But of course, what's just occurred to me is, is a part of me that came before me was me as a child. Oh, of course. How wonderful. So uh, yes, of course, my mum and dad and their parents and their parents mm. But immediately before me was um, a a five-year-old Robert and a three-year-old Robert and a 12-year-old Robert. And it's made me think that your work is somehow also about honouring them for each of us. Yes, absolutely. Yes, honouring each part of ourselves and giving space and place for each of the parts of ourselves so that they're no longer parts, but that they're this kind of integrative being that we become. And I think that's really all about, you know, Carl Rogers' work about on becoming a person, right? That when we're able to fully embody and be who we already have been all this time, which is the wonderful five-year-old who could be playing with trains and stuff like that, then actually life's burdens or struggles kind of fall away. One of the very common mistakes people make between play and work, and I absolutely get this, is that, you know, work is kind of drudgery and you've got to just kind of slog through it and then look at the clock and the watch. And when it's done at 6pm, then you can be yourself. I mean, when we look at, you know, we're spending probably 80% or more of our waking hours doing work or work-related activities. That's more, way more time than we'll ever spend with our loved ones. <laughs> that's, that's another key motivator for me. I needed to change the way I was living to test this theory out. And I have to say, I highly recommend it. And what people tell me as well is that they start playing more at home after they've heard talks like this. And they go, oh, you know, I brought my train set down because of course they never threw it away. Mm. And of course their, their father loved them so much that he always kept it in a box upstairs. So all of a sudden you start bringing that out and then this father and son will now start playing that set with his children. And that will start kind of enabling that change of perception of play that was once so stigmatized. The other thing, of course, in kind of dabbling in this world of play is that it is really important to acknowledge what's called sometimes as the 
dark side of play, which is the land of trauma. You know, as you say, we've all been children. And if we look at Gabo Mate's world, a work, what is trauma? But something that's experienced inside us that we've not been able to process with external support. You know, it could be, for me, it was actually <laughs> the passing of my two hamsters when I was about six or seven year old. It was jam and peanut butter. And they passed before I could kind of agree on the names for them. And because of the way they were got rid of so quickly from my life, it took years until I was sort of, I think, um, 21 or 22, when I had this breakup with a boyfriend. And the first thing that came in my mind was, oh, I really miss jam and peanut butter. This And something in me knew that it was the same feeling of mm. loss. And so the nice thing with this play is it allows us to start sharing things that are really just part of being human beings. And it doesn't need to be this terrible, terrifying thing. So um, we, can, we, we can reclaim our humanity um, absolutely. Through, through play. Yeah and, yeah. and 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 I'm making a connection back to what you said about depression mm. that the opposite of play yeah. uh, one way of looking at it is that it's depression which can often be to do with some some kind of interruption to a normal emotional processing and yeah. and, and and has links to trauma of course. Yeah. So let's go back into the world of work which we have been exploring but can all work be play or mm. is there a distinction is there in your mm. world play and work, and maybe there's an overlap, or could we turn all of our work into play? And would that be desirable? What I've observed, both in myself and with the adults around me, is that it's really important to make that distinction. I'd just like to share with how Dr. Brown presents it, and then we can kind of play with that. So Dr. Brown says that actually play and work both lead to creativity and innovation, and then that in turn lead to invention and growth. Sounds pretty good. You know, it's what all the great successful companies like Google and Apple do, right? So that that kind of combo of play and work together in tandem, a bit like a helix, like DNA, that's great. Dr. Brown then points out, actually, there's something else that work brings that perhaps play doesn't, which is two things, purpose and competence. So I kind of felt vindicated because I saw this and I wasn't going to stop going to work the next day on Monday, right? I had to continue going to work and earn a living. So knowing that going to work meant purpose and competence was very curious to me. And it's probably much of what we experienced when we were at school. We studied hard. That is part of a child's work. But a child's work is also much play. And then I found out from Peter Senge writing um, the foreword to a book called The Living Company that he was saying, actually, business, if you translate it into Chinese, is sang yi. So literally, it means meaning of life. And that's the case with many languages like Swedish, etc. So I'm like, oh my goodness, the meaning of life is what business is. What a shame it is that we've forgotten what that is. And again, that's what motivated me to say, okay, so I am on the right path. And this distinction between purpose, the work and the play is that in order to achieve a great goal, you have to play more. So the greater the purpose, the more fun you need to have to get what you want done. The thing is, (laughs) because it is work, it is tiring in a different way. It's very, you know, it's taxing as work. So therefore you do need a break. And that's when you have time to rest. So I'd say there's work. If this was like a little chessboard of life, you'd have play, you'd have work, you've had rest, you'd have sleep, and you also have diet. So this is a very fun thing just to look at these five elements in your life and see how they all fit in together. 
Tell us something about the different ways that people play, because um, children play in completely different ways. Mm. And I imagine that through the encouragement of, of, of your work and the interventions that you do within, within corporates, you would see adults taking on the encouragement to play in very different ways. What can that look like? So the first example would be something like initiative. So one of the um, recommendations that people enjoy is to have the team lead or the manager lead by example and say, these are the breaks in the day and this is the lunch hour or whatever it is. And they take those breaks and they take those lunch times and you can see them actively walking out the door or whatever when they do this or they're not available. So when people start seeing that, they will start following because all of a sudden you have this permission, right? And hopefully <laughs> when that manager or team lead comes back from their lunch hour, they might say, oh, I've just ordered myself some new headphones or got myself a new gaming chair because it's much better for my back when I do all these calls. And that would be wonderful to share that sort of snippet of people's lives. So that's kind of one way that leaders can do this. And by doing this, it sort of frees people up to be more of themselves. Another example is just making available the resources that teams need to do what they'd like. And you rotate as well. So it might be, okay, and it doesn't need to be a huge sum. It would be something like £100 for a team every quarter. And then you just say, this is what's available and get this team to figure it out. And that's the, one of the best team building exercises because you'll see emergent leadership and behaviour appear. And the, what, what, tell us more about what that yeah. might look like. So, so what, the person who will probably sometimes be the quietest one mm. in the team might step up and go, well, um, that £100 is really precious. You know, we need to take this very seriously. And all of a sudden you get a view of this quiet person being very serious about the work. And you start noticing them, whereas previously they would have been very quiet. They would have got on the work, no drama, nothing. But they're also the ones that get overlooked. So this person say, OK, well, we've got this hundred pounds and they might go and poll and interview everybody for five minutes. <laughs> so the next day they'll come in at their stand up or their team meeting, and go, well, I've asked everybody and here's the poll results. And they'll have done a little Excel or, or Google graph of it, right? And these are the votes and these are the options. This is when people are available to play and when they're not. So based on everything we've got, we've got, you know, two options. One is Tuesday night or one is Thursday lunchtime, you know? And it's really fun when you start seeing this because the people who are truly playful, once they realize they have that permission, then they'll go. But they... There won't be total chaos and madness and Mary Poppins will absolutely approve because true play is safe play, fair play and being a good sport. So so the person who may take on yeah. the role of nurturing or supporting or amplifying play may not yeah. may well not be the person who you think would do that. It, it could in fact be, uh, it could actually open up a space for somebody to step into. I really like that. That um, yeah. opens up all sorts of possibilities, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I get, I get, you know, people who've sort of, we've played together, they share these stories with the organisations, including universities I've worked in. And they say, oh, so-and-so has started this gaming club after work uh, or after, you know, studies, but we would never have heard from them before. But they've done some amazing things and created this community and they might even stand for the president of the university. You know, it's like, wow, you know? Yeah, it's just really unboxing and freeing what's already there. 
We talked about, uh, you've touched on on teams. I'd like to explore a little bit more about the benefits of play for a team in order mm. for the team to be more effective. And we also mentioned leadership style. So I know you've got some thoughts about how play or playfulness could be incorporated into a really legitimate and effective leadership style. So let's start with teams. Mm -hmm. What might be some of the benefits for teams to become more playful with each other? Yeah, so the first thing would be sustainable pace. All of a sudden, by having legitimate and authorised downtime, you know, the brains will work better, hopefully the bodies will work better because they might go for a little walk or a run, then people will naturally get more productive, which means they'll create less defects in the work they do. Not that they deliberately do it, but that we do it out of fatigue, right? And then it becomes this vicious cycle of we're tired, we make mistakes, then we get more tired, fixing more mistakes, creating more mistakes and all of that. But the moment they actually work in a sustainable way, because that's fair play, right? You get paid to do your hours, say nine till six. Why would you do more? Mm. A, a good, responsible employer would not expect that of their employees right? Because they want their businesses to flourish and sustain. So all of a sudden, people will be more alert, they'll be willing. Um, one of the things I do is I never tell people what to do. For me, I got that learning from meeting my husband, you know, my then boyfriend, and I had to make a decision. You know, if this relationship is going to last, I'm going to just accept that I will never be able to tell him what to do. And that's a, that was a massive thing for me because <laughs> that was not the way things worked in my household growing up, right? And so I thought, okay, I accept that challenge. And it's just been so liberating because that's because I never want to be told either and that the people want to have that choice of their own. So, so it's about choosing how I want to play mm. today or even in this moment. And it might, yeah. it, it is, so your practice isn't about going in and going, we're going to play and this is how we're going to play. Oh, no. It's I don't an invitation. Yes. It's an invitation for each person to work this out for themselves or, Absolutely. or find a way of engaging in a playful manner. Is would that be true? Absolutely. So, you know, so I, what sort of things do you see happen when, when people, when adults are given that opportunity, mm, maybe for the first time ever, the permission? Yeah. Um, how might that play out just to give people an idea of what just, it might look the like? The change happens immediately. You know, it's like doing a small chemistry experiment. You put in something that's catalyzing the catalyst and then boom, it's there. And everyone's like, that's weird. I never thought I'd live to see the day that so-and-so. And those are the sentences oh. they'll use. Or I never dreamed that it would be possible, this is. It's like, well, yes, because all we did was just surface and create the opportunity for people to be who they are. Is it that, is it, so this is this surprises mm. me a little, is it that near, is it that near to the surface for, for most people, most adults, okay. uh, to go, oh, uh, yeah. um, Portia says, let's play, no problem, let's do it. So, or or might, might, yeah. might there be some people who actually are like, well, I'm not, I can't find that anymore. Yeah. I might have had it, yeah, you know, 30 absolutely. or 40 years ago. So in spite of my exuberance about play, what I have to say that is that it's a very tender subject. There will be many of us who um, maybe didn't have the chance to play enough in childhood or not mm -hmm. had enough or not even had the chance at all. So if we look at the findings, you know, in the orf Romanian orphanages during Ceausescu's reign, you know, what they discovered from that was that what keeps babies alive is that warm, affectionate touch from a parent. And if it's not a parent, it's a caring adult who 
who could literally tune in to, you know, their heartbeat and stuff like that. And without that, we give up as living organisms. So what I'm saying is that play needs to be an invitation. It's an offer. And there are many of us who've not really, we don't remember how to play or needs more time. So true play is also a choice. It's an invitation. So enforced play is punishment. So in in that, is it, I don't know, I'm surprised I'm saying this, but let's mm. go with it. Is is it a taboo for a lot of adults to um, play or to consider that play could be a a relevant and appropriate thing to happen at work? And, yeah. and I know you, you talked a bit about shame in childhood and possibly something of a stigma around the idea yeah. of adults playing. Could you could you speak yeah, to that, Portia? Yeah, absolutely. I think we only need to um, step through the numerous buildings around London, which is where a lot of my work is based. Those shiny buildings that look like Transformer, really shiny, mm. marble floors, glass and mirrors everywhere. We step into those buildings and you only need to look at the faces of the people and then how they're dressed and how everyone's so uniform. And then we get into a lift and then we need to be together for 23 floors and no one smiles. Mm. That is probably one of the <laughs> more harmful things that we have to endure in a daily commute. Because I know this, I notice myself kind of lapsing into depression when that happens. So absolutely. And if you if you crack a joke or something, people kind of like move away a little bit in that lift from you thinking, oh gosh, that, that person's a bit mentally unstable. When in fact, you're probably the liveliest amongst all the zombies. So I would say that... So is it a... So, sorry yeah, to interrupt no. you. So you're, you're, you're now suggesting, I love it, that, you're, that it's a call to wake up because zombies, of course, are, not, are only half awake or asleep. So play could be a call to wake up. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fully yourself. And you have to be conscious and present to do that, right? So Eckhart Tolle and all the others talk about this, that you only know if you're conscious if you are taking the actions you want to do. So if you go to the same coffee shop and you buy the same latte every day and you wonder why you're not losing any weight or you're not getting fitter, then it's likely that you're probably, you know, sleeping beauty at the moment. And that if you played more, then actually things would change. So another example is, you know, I was in an aqua park yesterday. It was lovely to see like a father and his son, so clambering up after um, having spent 45 minutes, you know, moving around this crazy water park in very cold water. And the young man said, as he climbed it, he said, I never thought that sport could be fun. And you could see for sure that they were going to come again. Mm. And I think, you know, he's not alone in that. We, we all feel that, right? It's hard to squeeze everything in in the work days that we have. So just before we talk about leadership style, you, you talked about Helena earlier mm. and her uh, work around love. Yes. So what is the connection between the heart and play? And I think that's what makes it a taboo, actually, in organisations, because we're not allowed to talk about feelings and we're certainly not allowed to show them, God forbid. You know, no matter what happens, no matter how devastating. And when we are not able to feel our feelings and have an opportunity to share them in a safe way, it actually turns everything toxic around you as a team, as an organisation. You know, I once worked in an organisation where there was um, a floor and it was a certain number on the floor and everyone just knew not to get off at that floor because they were like, that's known as the library. That's where you're not allowed to be yourself for sure. You're going to get shouted at, possibly made to cry by somebody who's more senior. Don't go there to sit. You know, and I think that's the thing with love and play is that you you have to show up as yourself. And that 
understandably can be quite scary for people who've not had the chance to be well received when they have been emotional, be it joy or sadness. So let's move on to leadership. So somebody listening to this now who is a leader or aspires to be a leader, mm. is playful leadership a thing in town? Uh, uh, absolutely. And that, that's kind of the term I use. I know other people have different meanings. But for me, a playful leader is an individual who enables the flow of value through their ability to play. Of course, they have vision, they have skills, but it's their ability to play which distinguishes them from other leaders. And I've seen, this is a pattern, I haven't made this up. I kind of look at the, the managers, leaders and the wannabe leaders that I witness and the ones who are most playful are these things of, they are resourceful. Oh, there's a the problem with the laptops. What problem? I'll just go get Jeff and uh, that'll be sorted in five minutes. You know, so there's the whole kind of resourceful, respectful, responsible, resilient and real. And because they show up like that, people trust them. And then those people go, all right, well, for this little amount of time when I'm with Mary, I can really be myself. Then I'll get that bit of work done, you know, best. And, you know, those would be the people that other people want most to collaborate with. We'll go and consult and get some guidance. Um, you know, oh, have you checked with Mary? Has anyone asked Mary? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, if Mary says it's good, it's good. And you often hear that from senior managers because they're checking, you know, whether or not those things have been validated. And yes, they are. Where is the the play module in an MBA sitting these days? I mean, is it is this something that is being coming, or are we yeah. a long way away from it, or are there are there some examples where yeah. it's being really taken on. Yeah. So I um, run my Playful Leadership program at Ashridge Business School because it's a pop-up school there. And I know, you know, Ashridge Business School and other business schools and universities probably present play as creativity and innovation. But play is just so much more fundamental than that, right? They've done, you know, the marshmallow test. They've seen how, you know, <laughs> children, you know, who, who performs best at the marshmallow test? You know, build the highest tower with X number of marshmallows and only spaghetti and no, and some tape, but no blue tack, right? And who, who performs best? Well, the children outperform the MBA students every time, right? So this yeah. is why I'm saying that play is fundamental and the bedrock of creativity and innovation without which there can be none. So that, that's the key difference. So absolutely, I look forward <laughs> to appearing on a university program for leadership because that is the key thing. And with play, you learn about dealing with uncertainty. And, you know, I was just thinking, we talk about transformation in organisations. You know how, oh, you know, my teams must change, but I'm not going to do it. And they're going to transform and all of that. Well, actually, what is transformation and change but growth? Children don't go, tomorrow I'm going to transform into an eight-year-old. No, they just get on with it, don't they? They just grow and grow and grow. And um, that's the natural way to be. So let's get on to some practicalities. Um, we're coming to the end of our conversation mm -hmm. and these podcasts are very much about looking at the theory and the understanding and the conceptualization of how something like play could be incorporated mm. into the workplace and into uh, a leadership style. But what can somebody listening to us right now who thinks I'd love to do something like this. Mm. Uh, I'd love to foster greater playfulness in, in my team or in my workplace. Yeah. Can you share some things that um, in your experience could work and would be a way in? Sure. And before I do that, I just want to kind of conjure up the wisdom of the Dalai Lama, right? Because he says that, you know, all the wisdom of the world doesn't serve you unless you take action. So I absolutely agree with you. And yet I'm going to say that I'm pretty sure 80% of your listeners within the next 24 hours will quite easily come up with ideas themselves. 
because it's emergent. They'll have heard something. They might even be a bit grumpy or dare I say annoyed with what I've said. But in that annoyance is their way of going, hmm, I might play with that idea a little bit more. But I'm happy to to share. So so make time to play, even if it's something like five minutes a day. It's like having your daily vitamin, isn't it? Five minutes a day. And if you're not sure, find a friend. Now that might be a four-footed friend or a human being friend or a small child or even something from childhood. So for example, you know, recently I had a, a very a lovely friend close to my heart and um, he, he said to me, oh, I finally managed to finish that first game in Hero Quest that I've never been able to do as a child because you have to be the games master and the, the player. And in those days, they didn't have the tech for it. And also none of his friends wanted to play it with him, right? But now we have the tech because the phone, the games master comes with the phone says, you know, you have failed. And, but it, you know, it facilitates the whole game, which enabled him to play the entire game over the weekend. And this is what the adults tell me. They're like, I've gone back to how I used to play or like to play. But where I got stopped for whatever reasons, and then I've picked that up again, you know, so, oh, I've started playing the guitar again, even though I wasn't very good at it. But now I'm, you know, doing this with it. And it's just a wonderful thing. So going back to how you like to play or how you spent time is the key thing. You might not have so-called enjoyed it, but there was a reason you spent time as a child doing that thing that might have been, you know, a tough struggle. So finding things you like to do as a child, um, doing it with friends. And then the third challenge I would say is make new friends. (laughs) And lastly, I know that there will be people listening uh, to this right now who who have got a meeting tomorrow or this afternoon, maybe an all-day meeting. Oh, wow, one of those, yeah. And maybe an agendered, serious all-day meeting. Oh, yeah, well-scheduled, well-planned. Important things are going to be talked about and decided. How could somebody who's running that meeting or even just participating in that meeting bring a bit of what you've talked about today, Portia? So, um... I like doing kind of icebreakers and warm-ups, even if you're already warm, both before at the start of the day, but also right after lunch. Uh, And one of the things I like doing is this thing called like the three questions ping pong. So you just open up the room and you move the chairs aside and people have, um, you know, five minutes to meet a colleague they don't know already. And they take turns asking each other one question at a time, up to three. And the only rule is that when you get asked a question, you reserve the right to ask for a different question. And I know it's so simplistic, but just people love it. And the things you learn, people come back to me and say, wow, I've sat next to, you know, Toby for 10 years, but I didn't know he loves cooking for his wife. And that's what I love to do too. And we've already started changing, exchanging recipes. And you're like, yes, because actually their relationship was actually a blocker. And I've been told, Mm -hmm. right. And I I didn't have to do very much. So so I'm going to just make sure we're clear on this because I think it's so simple and um, could work so well. So you pair up maybe after lunch and you take it in turns to ask three questions to your partner. Yeah. And you either answer the question or you say, can I have another question? Absolutely. And then you would move on to a different pair. And then if, yeah, if you're feeling fruity, doing, you could do mm, that three times. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a I nice way. It. And I would say... Ask for permission before you play, but always play first. Because with my talks, sometimes people put me at the end of a three-day or five-day conference. But by then, people are like, oh, I wish she'd gone first because then she would have given us permission to play and set the tone. Um, So that's the thing. So always play first, but ask for permission. So you say, you know, this is the exercise we're going to do. It's entirely up to you if you want to do it. If you don't want to do it, you're welcome to go get some coffee and then come back when we're done. 
That's Portia, it. it's been such a pleasure talking to you about play and your your breadth and depth of knowledge uh, and the uh, all of the different um, historical experts that you've brought into the conversation, mm. which people can go and look up and find out more about. I also want to commend you on your ability to come up with people's names, <laughs> which has been just a delight. I've played with a lot of adults, but no, n- n- you know, no mm. guilty or whatever names have been used. Mm. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming to talk to us uh, today. Thank you for coming to play with us today. Yes, and I wish you all the best for your podcast. What a great initiative. Thank you. The Ready to Play Portia Tung. Many thanks to her for her time today. If you'd like to learn more about the School of Play and the remarkable work Portia does, visit her website at theschoolofplay.org. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out the show notes for more information about today's guest and the topics covered. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, give us a like, rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. I'd like to thank today's studio manager at VoxPod, Alex Bennett. Our researcher is Ella Halsell and the series producer is Ollie Giu. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.